Well, thank you so much, Zane, for joining me today. Super excited to chat about everything you and Fed Up Foods are doing. I had a pre-conversation before we started recording. And I think using your skill set, your team's skill set to bring regenerative farming, sustainable farming, you know, stewards of land, kind of really uplifting them to the private markets in a way and having consumers enable to able to interact with them. And then also on the other side, enabling future founders and emerging founders, a place to go to start, you know, their social impact brand, you know, their social enterprise through the white label model. So before we get into fed up foods and, and everything amazing that you guys are building, talk a little bit about your, your journey up to this point, you know, what led you to be in this, this world of, you know, organic food, sustainable food, regenerative farming, all this, How, how'd you get to this point? Well, first, First of all, Grant, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about what we do and just giving gratitude to you and what you do and the questions you're asking, because the only way we continue to unfold this mess and get it into a space where everyone gets to a seat at the table, no matter what table you sit at, um, is by asking the question. So lots of gratitude for you up front and the work that you're doing. My journey into Fed Up Foods was a, a rather peculiar one. I... I started in global real estate development. I was uh, there for a while. I worked in, in entertainment from a publicity, public relations perspective with some of the fun pop music sensations that probably are no more poppy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, was able to um, be a, a part of that scene for a while and then started looking at like, what does it mean to build homes? What does it mean to have shelter? And um, it was a really fascinating amount of work and I loved doing it. You know, we would take old places and, and redesign them and recreate them, you know, 15, 16th, 17th century places and people would be able to come and stay and it was great. But then I woke up one day and I was like, you know, if, if I die today, what did I really do? What system was I supporting? Was I supporting, you know, a place where more people can follow their bliss and do the things they want to do and so show up in the way for their families and communities that they want to? Or am I just creating silos that are not connected, not connected to the way everything works? And even though there were some green practices we were trying to do and stuff like that, you would sell a building or you would sell a property and then the next person who would get it would just undo everything you did. Like, you know, it was just so, it was hard. So I actually, you know, the the joke for a while was that um, so I was living in between Orlando uh, and London and and traveling quite a bit and when I left the the, the whisper campaign was that I had a nervous breakdown um, and I didn't have a breakdown I had a breakthrough and I actually ended up big difference big difference big difference and um, so I ended up relocating to uh, Asheville North Carolina I'd always wanted to move to this part of the world mainly because it's got incredible resources. It still has four seasons. It's one of the few places in the United States that has its own what I call cultural vernacular of a people that mm. have, you know that still share their stories through hymns, that still share their stories through uh, storytelling, um, that have a particular aesthetic around, I guess, I'd consider like the outside world, right? Like all of the nature sure. that kind of abounds you and, and it's really rooted and interconnected and it's not from a pseudo-spiritual kind of situation. It's just more of you are in this place that for the most part has been really hard to like get connected to the rest of the world, to the rest of the United States. It's very isolated in that way because of the terrain. Uh, so if you live here, you're here and, and you figure out how to work with the land, you figure out and understand the pattern. So that was something that was really resonating with where I was and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to build a family and, and be in the future uh, against a, a world that's rapidly changing due to climate change. And so I got here and I um, was working with a couple businesses at the time. And my specialty in particular is like enterprise strategy, um, really deep into the marketing capacity capability piece of what it means to take a ethereal concept of a product and or thing and or service mm -hmm. and marry it to like the various different dimensions of tone and voice and essence tonality, all those pieces that help create what we think of as a brand and service and then allow that kind of to go into the world and then bring people in and have a conversation and then you engage and people use energy to engage with it and energy that's easy for most people are dollars. <laughs> and so to be sure. able to create this, you know, this really cool marketplace around intentional thought, intentional brands. And so I was doing that in um, Asheville and meeting some really phenomenal people. And I really decided at that point in my life, I wanted to build 
the fundamentals for a community. And I think of community not as a destination. I really, really do think it's a process, right? It's a process of people. It's a process of people in place. And so that was foremost in my mind. And it was the time in my life where I felt like I could really do that. So that was 14 years ago. And then from that point on, it just kind of snowballed into putting out this, you know, kind of of feelers or, you know, you put your antenna up around like, sure. who are the sure. people who kind of get what it means to be uh, working in and around business for like a word, like a, for lack of a better words, to be really aware, have a sense of awareness of what it means to build and make product with people who also value uh, connection, value community, value uh, the fact that they actually live in this planet and what they do is directly related to how we thrive and, and how we how we kind of live as a, as, a, as a people, as a race of people. And so I started to kind of, those people started to come into my orbit and I yeah. started to yeah. intersect with their orbit. And along that way, you know, from, it's amazing. I always say I live in the epicenter of social impact in this place. And it's the most bizarre thing because you would think people would go to like big time California, banging, banging, San yeah. Fran, hanging out, LA, you know, popping the rock in New York City for all these interconnections, especially in social change for California. But let me tell you, man, there's so much nexus of like super sweet people from artists to people who have high capital, high net worth that have made the energy of the dollar and are reinvesting that and building a, a deeper fabric around who we are and what it means to actually have engagement and interaction and intersection where we use money as a means to keep our promises and keep our agreements, right? So there's these great people here. And then I, um, I ended up meeting this lady who uh, started a water company here called Blue Moon Water. Really cool story around Blue Moon is another day, but um, it's a gravity-fed uh, spring water um, in a small town in Yancey County. And we were trying to think about, like, how do you scale a water company? And mm -hmm. I had not scaled a water company. I wasn't in beverage. Um, but the principles are very similar. You know, it's kind of like the the tactics and strategies and thought processes are, are rooted in, in similar ideas and concepts. And so we were thinking about that. And the model was, is that we were going to try to return the water to the people and make water the new oil, right? Like, how can you share mm -hmm. profits of this, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. really, you know, super uh, incredible resource that has a high value on it? So we put this business model together to do that. Um, and we were working with each other. Then come along these two ladies, which I call them um, my hippie mamas from a lack of that's how they were described to me uh, when I met them. Um, first met them and then this, she, uh, the lady said, um, you know, these two hippie mamas came into the, to the store today and um, they make kombucha, kombuti. I was like, oh <laughs> yeah, kombucha. She was like, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they want to buy my water. They want to buy the water. And I was like, this is great. Like gravity fed spring water into kombucha. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was so funny because she was like, yeah, I don't know what it is, but you know, I'm, I would love for you to talk to them. Maybe there's something that we can do. And I was like, well, I was intrigued already. And, you know, at the time I had investigated, raw vegan diets. And I was doing, I've done all the diets, let's just put it that way. Um, I was an equal opportunity lover. And um, I was buying the t-shirts, doing all the things of all of the ones. And <laughs> so at the time I was, I was living in that world for a little bit. And sure, sure. Um, so I ended up meeting these two ladies, uh, one's Janine Busher and one is Sarah Schomber. And both were the ladies who decided to brew kombucha together. They met in their homeschool co-op. Um, and uh, it was love at first sight. And I decided I really want to work with them. And they had just met each other a few months before me. This is how it works. They both moved yeah. to Asheville around the same time I did. They came here for the same reason around creating connection, wow. community, and ability to engage. And Janine had decided um, that she's like, I'll just make some extra kombucha and sell it at the farmer's market. And Sarah was like, um, and her husband were like, yeah, we should make kombucha. There's not a local kombucha. And then we should sell it to the farmer's market. They met in their kids' homeschool co-op, matchmaker, matchmaker, met it, put them together. And then four or five months later, they're wanting to go purchase water to, to like start making this stuff. 
Yeah. And yeah. Um, I meet them. And I was like, yes. And so needless to say, the lady that I worked with with Blue Moon Water and the water company, I was like, I'm going to have to like do this other thing because there was just more alignment with Sarah and Janine. And we came together and Janine's partner, husband, Jeff, and at the time, Sarah's husband now, uh, what I call parental partner. Ex-husband's never cool to say, uh, but a parental <laughs> partner, they have kids together. So, so we all jumped in together to start, you know, brewing kombucha. And when we came together, we were like, look. It's not that all of us were, Jeff and I are pretty seasoned in the business world from, you know, living in that yeah. space, but the rest of them weren't. They were brewers. Sarah was a master mead maker. Nathan, um, Janine was an occupational therapist and she was into Montessori. So she's a Montessori teacher. So there was no like, you know, we're going to come together and be this kombucha company and make billions of dollars. There was, there was none of that. It was just, we really think there should be an alternative in the market for a lower sugar, better for you product that our kids and the people that we are in and work with in this community should have a local opportunity and just be able to like, yeah. what does that look like if we brewed? What does it look like if we added medicine into our kombucha? What does it look like if we learn how to do this really well? And so that's yeah. how it started. And, and that little tiny seed, we mm -hmm. put a name on it and um, I branded it with everyone. And, you know, Bucci, the name Bucci existed before I met the girls. And uh, we just married that to a whole nother idea set. And then that's how, that's what's anchored our, our, our kind of like evolution uh, over for like 40. Wow. So we're 14 years old now. Wow. So, so that leads sort of into fed up foods and kind of looking at what sort of Bucci did or, or what their sort of ethos, yeah. you know, is mm -hmm. and saying, okay, how can we provide that opportunity to others, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. like Janine and, and like, like there's, there's probably others out there yeah. right, that want to build better, better companies, right. Mm -hmm. or for whether it's for, for themselves, for, for their children, just for humanity as a whole, right. We, we can kind of do this better. Right? right. But issue, I think with like, we had spoken previously uh, just about, you know, getting, getting it down to a price point where people can afford it. Right. Like how do we make healthy, affordable, and we need scale. And you know, to me, what I love about what Fed Up Foods does, it sort of really brings the everybody together, right? It brings the community of entrepreneurs together, farmers together. Yeah. How do we create something that we can then package, eco-friendly even, and then send it to consumers, right? Who, like me, yeah. search for this stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I go out of my way to just try to, even if it is more expensive right now, like it's still only like a dollar more, right? Or something mm -hmm. like that. And it will get lower, right? Yeah. But- I think having that accessibility to these products, yeah. right, to these brands is so important. And that's been the last, that's been the real hurdle I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, all that to say yeah. is talk about like fed up foods. Like when somebody asks you about it, yeah. like how do you talk about like How do you state its sort of mission and vision? Yeah, no, I, you know, I as you were talking about access, like all the things were, were ringing, you know, a chorus of bells in my mind. So in order to answer that, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to frame it from, you know, as the brand continued to grow, we, we begin to, we begin to realize that if we really wanted to live the mission and vision, if we really wanted more people to have really incredible beverages, if we really wanted really wonderful inputs to make it into the soil and then into the product itself, like what would have to change? Because like you said, from conventional agriculture, from that perspective, it's all about demand, 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 demand. The more you buy, the cheaper it gets. It's a, it's a fascinating thing humans do. In order to do that, they believe that, then I say they, I mean, the energies of of, of mass construct and infrastructure that, that provide the narrative that says in order for you to provide something at a price that's affordable, it's got to be low grade, low octane, right. you know, ingredients, low octane food, right? That's the only way because it's got to be processed and we know how to put things in bottle. And so when we started looking at that, you know, we've always been super active in and around the social space of humans and what humans are doing and where humans are living and eating and sleeping and how they're making laws and trying to conduct themselves like a human. So we were always involved in that space. And so we said we wanted to root that together. So we, we went in and merged with another kombucha company, I'd say about six, seven years ago, uh, Capital Kombucha, because... I'm introducing Andreas, who's a who's an important part of the Fed Up Foods piece and what we do. And so we met um, 
Andreas Schneider, who is based out of Hudson, and a really cool-ass vibe. Of, Hudson's just a cool-ass city anyway. Um, it's kind of a sister city to Asheville, similar root system going on. Um, and so he came uh, and was uh, we met at a trade association. We, we helped found the – there's lots of fun bits here. So we helped found the Kombucha Brewers International, which is the trade group anchored in the United States but is now global. Because you remember back in 2010 when they had all that kombucha issue and someone had a wrist bracelet or what all the nonsense was about. Anyway, basically fermented foods go over 0.5% sometimes in alcohol. And at the time, yeah. it was just a bunch of home brewers trying to do something at a commercial mm. scale. So there was no commercial brewing places as it were with like a really set you know, program, like here's the protocols, here's how you do this. And um, by nature, kombucha wants to be a little bit more alcoholic because it's yeast and bacteria. You can actually figure out a biological process, spoiler alert, we did, that allow you to make kombucha that's below 0.5%. But at the time, it was like, you know, the the regulators were like, this is alcoholic, we have to pull it off the shelves, Whole Foods pulled it off Mm -hmm. the shelf. Instead of like, you know, figuring out a way to bring consensus in in the group of brewers, they were just so afraid that people were gonna, you know, get botulism or something and die. And so, you know, or babies would be at would be like, you know, five year old would be in the middle of Whole Foods and they'd be drunk. You know, like that was that was a real thing. They really thought that. So we we pulled um, folks together. Hannah, who serves as the executive director for the Kombucha Brewers and International, still to this day, uh, and I came when I was a founder. And there's some other cool. Um, grandpas and grandladies that uh, came came into play and, and began to hold the space. GTS Kombucha, GT Dave, he came in as a founding member. And so we all just said, hey, look, we got to figure out how to regulate the cats up in our place because pretty much like <laughs> they are going to stop us from selling this yeah. thing. And there's a lot of forces involved. Soda doesn't like it. Right. Like Mm, the juice companies are like, what is this weird stuff? So we are this very weird thing. And still that environment exists. Not as bad, but it was then. And so we, you know, we came together from that place. And so when Fed Up Foods began to emerge out of the brand, you know, our work was really tied to three simple things. I always like to say one is the inner soil. We wanted to create a space where the inner soil was nurtured and invested in. And the inner soil is, is who we are as a people and how we identify and, and how we show up for ourselves and our community. The second soil is we call it, it's our it's our social soil, right? It's the social soil of if we know who we are as a person, then we begin to interact with the social fabric around this. And that can be the group of humans that we call the human race that we that we work with and play with. And the idea there is like the social soil isn't just uh, inputs that feel like, look like, sound like me, but it's all the diversity of all of those pieces, no matter what they are. Some of them are into limiting the idea of human expression and some are very much into giving opportunity for human expression it doesn't matter it's all in the soil you can't when you're working with work in the soil you can't decide i only want to work with this little piece of the soil it doesn't work that way right (laughs) you got to work with the stones and the rocks and the bark and everything you know it's got to and there's a way where you can do that and so for us that was really important like that second soil is the social soil and then the third soil in a very real way is the microbiological soil which is how do we work with that element within our business Meaning, how do we nurture the relationships that are directly connected to putting incredible inputs into the soil that grow really incredible food? You know, ingredients, as we call them. I love how we move it from food to just ingredients. But, you know, these things that we use to make finished products. So those are the three pillars that kind of have built um, Fed Up Foods is how do we do business that one nurtures the inner soil, nurtures the social soil, and nurtures our microbiological soil? That's a little bit heady in the corporate world. So we decided to line it up with people, planet, profit. So it was easy. So we think about the social yeah. soil as what's the what what's what's the means at which we create and how do we do that? And I like to shift profit and 
I'm one of those weird people where words matter. So I like to call it people, planet, and prosperity because I think that there's this idea that there has to be a cost mechanism that doesn't feel good. And the only thing that feels good in that is the profit that's shared where when you create prosperity, there is no idea it's hurtful to pay for important ingredients because when you're prosperous, you're going to have the financial whereabouts to do it. You're also going to be doing things that celebrate the land. So we like to use people, prosperity, and planet. And that's what kind of is the the, the platform that creates our, our vision. And our vision is really, really simple. It's to nurture life. The next questions I have is really from you know the business side because it's really interesting now because you've kind of taken your real estate background a little bit yeah. and put that into, hey, how do we actually – I love not depending on yeah different like areas, whether it's people, whether it's traditional business models, traditional people in the supply chain, like how do we create our own thing? And Mm -hmm. I think you guys are buying land, Mm -hmm. restoring Mm -hmm. it, putting your breweries on these lands. Like to me, that is a also an ama- a really hard thing yeah, to do. It is. <laughs> um, but it's how you it's how you build those three pillars that you're talking about is that if you can in- integrate your philosophies into every part of what you do and not depend on certain outsized elements to hope that they care about what you care about, you know, it's like we we have a philosophy, we want to do this ourselves. Yeah. And so I love the idea of, of buying the land, but before yeah. that, was was being like a white label producer and empowering other brands and founders, was that always the idea? Or was was it saying, hey, we're just going to kind of build Bucci's in kind of different areas of the consumer marketplace? Yeah. Or like, I, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. I mean, I, it's a little bit of both, right? Because we you know, we knew coming into it from operating in a branded space, how difficult it was to compete, right? So you've got a couple pathways. You can either take in money from private equity. um, Mm -hmm. You can take in debt, a lot of debt, little private equity or a little bit of, you know, stuff going on. And you can also decide that, you know, you really want to be in control of of how you bring money in your capital stack and, and orient your business in a way that, you can continue to have the resources you need to achieve what you want to achieve. And one of those superheroes in my mind is Patagonia. Like they did a really brilliant job of mm-hmm. of being able to uh, not just maintain control, but be able to hold the governance of their of their organization in a way that allowed them to flex into their mission. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that was always really very clear in our mind. And so part of that was to create a business that was a little bit diversified in terms of assets. So it gave us an ability not to be beholden to someone coming in and writing a big check. And anytime anyone writes a big check, rightfully so, they also want to like set the rules and set the stage and create sure. create the space that they're paying for. I get it. But we weren't interested in attempting to negotiate our mission and where we wanted to go with individuals who may not have been in alignment with that. And, you know, during over the past, I'd say over the past 20 years, but in particular, over the past 15 years, our impact investment has really shifted, right? Like it's gotten a lot more accessible. People who have money finally decided that money just wasn't the way to go. And they decided to reinvest that in the things that that were life-giving. And then some people who were just like, I'm just like, you know, pioneers like the Patagonia folks that were just like coming in and doing it. So we kind of looked at it from a perspective of how do we build a business model that allows us to retain our ability to live our vision, work our mission? How do we do that against the backdrop of a world that requires a lot of capital? Brands are intensive capital machines. They're also very limiting in who they speak to. Their, you know, their voices are are activated for a particular demographic and segment of people. So if you want to speak to a lot of people, doing a lot of different things, you're going to have to have a brand that's going to be able to do that, right? Um, And so we were like, that's a lot of money. Um, And so the only way to do that is either take on a lot of debt or get a bunch of private equity money or wealth individuals, angel investors that want to put their money in. And so we were like, if we want to live our mission, get more people to drink more healthy foods, reinvigorate and bring incredible uh, ingredients, quote unquote, um, and inputs into that process and scale that. The only way that we could figure to do it is, is we got to get over our ego. We got to let our brand 
be something that nurtured us, but wasn't the vehicle that we were going to scale because in truth, we didn't want to compete with our, our kombucha bros and sisters on the shelf. Like it's not fun. It's just <laughs> not really fun. You know, it's just like buy yeah. me because yeah. I, what happens mm-hmm. is, is it, it, it created a climate now where you've got different kombuchas that are attempting to accentuate a particular aspect of their brew. Some of them are very forthright in their labeling that it's actually authentic and, you know, it's actually kombucha that you would believe would be, you know, unpasteurized. Some are like trying to pass off a kombucha that's been pasteurized, which for the record, if you want to pasteurize kombucha, that's fine. You just got to tell people what it is. Like, don't try to make something yeah, that's yeah. other than that. I know a lot of people that are into it and they don't have to worry about it exploding or something. It's in their shelf. They like it. And it's still a step above soda, right? So it, it's all good. But there was mm. this, it became this very intensive um, little brand against little brand against the big brand. And then it just became a place mm. where we were like, yeah. do we want to input our time and energy into more of what we don't like? in capitalism, or are we going to get really clear, tuned in, tapped and turned on about what we want to do? Do we begin to be in a place where we're not operating from, I can't, but because of that energy, are we going to get really clear about how do we feel when we're living and inspired and doing the work that really drives us? And so that's what we chose. We decided that that was where we wanted to be. And so our energy fell there. And so what began to open up for us was, you know, we don't have to take in private equity money. We could actually start to like hone our expertise and do it really well and then make kombucha for other people. Yeah. Um, so and it was like, we'll build an infrastructure that says, man, we know how to brew. We've, we've spent years creating our scalable craft brew tech. We really understand our culture. We spent so much money in understanding the science and marrying that to the craft of brewing. Like we still use, you know, air that's wild yeast that are just here in our bioregion that come into our cool ship, which is, a, which is where we get all of our starter and create healthy mothers. We map our gene, our gene lines of, of our various scobies and each of them um, have their own process in terms of things that they require we know uh, we have named each of them so that we can refer to them in our fermentation process we understand what's in there so we're like why don't we take what we do really well and make it available and so that's what we did and so private label showed up in a way that said there was a real gap in the market there wasn't a uh, private label producer that was able to kind of capture the marketplace. There there wasn't very, very few private label SKUs on when we got into the business around it. And a lot of the programs that were executed were executed poorly because it takes a lot of expertise to work with a living beverage and living food. It's just really different than heating yeah. and putting it in a bottle. So we just said, we're going to take that and we're going to amplify it. And our goal and still is, and we're working every day at it, is to make our platform more available so that when you go into black and brown communities or places where you've got a household with one woman and three kids or four kids working three or four jobs mm-hmm. in places where they can't afford to spend a whole quote unquote whole paycheck and whole foods, love you whole foods. But, you know, you're definitely positioned sure. for a group of people who want that access. Yep. We wanted to say, you know, you should be able to roll up in anywhere and buy a delicious kombucha yeah. that's organic, regenerative, fair trade. Totally can be done or buy a probiotic soda that's regenerative and fair trade. Like you should be able to, you should be able to do that. Um, that's what's really given the impetus around fed up foods and the name fed up serves two, two pieces. Like one is I'm fed up. Like I'm nurtured, right? I, I feel good. Like I'm, I'm fed up. You know what uh, I mean? It's double yeah, that's what I'm saying. Look, yeah, Erica yeah. Badu is inspiring everybody. No. Uh, <laughs> I love that sister. Anyway, so on the other side, from a very real space, is like we are really fed up with the extractive food system. It's horrible. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be. It does not have to be. Food does not have to be hoard out to its lowest common denominator and put junk in the bellies of people who we then expect to then be our police officers and our politicians and our policymakers, mm-hmm. our, our teachers. teachers. Like, how do we nurture our people yeah. if we're feeding them junk and garbage? How do you wake up to be inspired, tuned in, tapped on, turned in? How do you how do you have that when you have nutrient deficiency, literally, in the food? That's on your shelf. How is it okay that you don't have when you walk into a store that isn't built in a place that can afford all the opulence? How can you expect 
individuals who are buying nothing but some sugar and some fake coloring and some processed tomato or whatever it is to actually do do well do better it's not going to happen so either it's an intention of the system to keep everyone in this locked mentality so that you don't actually have access to real living nutrient dense food so that you can continue to go do the work boom 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 make the thing do, 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 do. not actually to live in the full abundance of who you are or we just haven't found a way to make the intersection happen. Mm. And so I'd like to hope and think we haven't found a way to make the intersection happen. I think it's the, you I think know it's what I mean? I, I do I think it's the latter because we've like you said, we've we've created a food system where it's monocultured yeah. and it's incredibly attractive. Those two things just literally aren't they are not even from a <laughs> Not even from a climate perspective, <laughs> just from a, a capitalism yeah. business right. perspective. Because at some point, the land is going to say no. You're going to have to keep pumping more and more fertilizer in it. And at some point, that is not going to work. That is going to become just as just as you said with the kombucha side, where you know they thought people were going to get drunk in the aisles. Because well, you're really going to start to see people get really really sick from eating food, and it's yeah. happened, right? I mean, we we are not. A very exactly. Question. And it's and what you said was so true, Grant, around it's how I think about it. It's like if you go to any PE, if you go to any investment firm and you bring your money to them, they're going to talk to you about this diversification of portfolio. You got to have all these diverse assets because you don't want to. And I'm like, hey, if you take that same mentality and think about your soil and think about your food and think about how it's grown, then you would really like be able to benefit so much more. If you just use the simple concept that says if you diversify it and bring all of these inputs in so that the system can stand on its own like it has for millions of years, you know, we love to like, I love when craft was a thing. So we say craft kombucha or craft beer. Do you remember that when like craft was like, it was like the, it was like the, uh, craft colored paper against black and it was like like craft wood you know that there's this one thing i think yeah i forget which podcast i saw it was oh where it was like this whole like deep you know thoughtfulness around all of that and what was really beautiful around that was is that people really value slow food they value things that are intentionally done and craft and, and artfully inspired because they tend to taste better. You go to slow food or farm to table restaurants, the best restaurants you can go to, they're always the most expensive because they have the most incredible food. So like, mm -hmm. even in that model alone, I'm like, you know why this restaurant is doing, you wanna know why Gordon Ramsay does really well is because he's buying incredible produce, he's buying incredible foods, he's putting out, and people are like, oh, I love his restaurants. Oh, it's so amazing, like why, yes. Uh, let's do more of that. One one thing we, we mentioned earlier, and it's obviously, you know, a massive topic is affordability. Yeah. You had mentioned before that regenerative, fair trade, organic, we, we associate it with almost yeah. luxury, right? And, and that it's it's not right. attainable for, for much of the population. But you said it is, yeah. right? At, at a certain point, at sure. a certain scale, like, how do we get to that point? And, and is it is it possible? And what kind of scale is sort of necessary? And maybe where are we at in that timeline of kind of making it where it is at least maybe it's only 50 cents right. more, right? Or, or 35 cents more, right? That, that yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 uh, it's complicated only because we, I think we, and I include myself in that, that the system of us as humans and how we engage tends to place a lot of this is how we used to do it versus this is how we can. So I think that's that's a very real energy in the system that has to figure that has that has to be transmuted in a lot of ways because let's just say for example the largest retail brand on the planet is Kirkland Signature. They're the largest retail brand. What is Kirkland wow. Signature? It is the private label for Costco. Costco. It's the largest yeah. retail brand. Wow. So they are the largest uh, seller of wine on the planet. They just, they are crazy, right? So let's just say, for example, Kirkland Signature, we're deciding to say, you know, we're going to really focus where we want 50% of our suppliers to work with regenerative partners. We really believe that if yeah. we can take the might of our marketplace and begin to work with those suppliers, we'll have a massive impact both in 
farming practices and all that. So what does that mean? That means that individuals who aren't farming with regenerative practices now have to learn how to do that. That means conventional farms that have been doing things in the conventional way are going to have to retool their system into what would be considered a slower food process, meaning that we're going to have to like slow down the amount of yield. And here's where I'm going with that. Instead of basing everything on scarcity, right? On like, if you do more, blah, 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 blah. So you like, everyone's got to have more, 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 more. You have more demand, more demand, more demand. And that's how we price things, right? If it's really, really affordable, that means it's in a lot of places, right? Because it's been scaled. If we flip that on its head and say, instead of us actually charging per pound, so instead of you getting like three pounds of bananas and it being 48 cents per pound of bananas and then you can buy more gotcha. bananas, what if we did and measured our food based on its food density? What if we said, do you really need to eat 10 tomatoes or could you just eat three? Because the level of nutrient density is what you need. Could you actually begin to think about those food places where more nutrient grown items provide more nutrient density in the food? Now, everything won't be able to be at that level, but if we started to approach it from that, instead of saying, we make more money when we sell more things into, we actually make good margin, good money when we sell really good inputs, and then we amplify that. And so there's this, sure. there's a lot of great work that's been, that's been done. One of the, the groups that I really, really love to work with that, that we've connected to, they're based out of, out of Hudson. They do a, a lot of work around what does it think about being in soil and how does that soil feed regenerative farming, especially around cattle farming and dairy? Um, Hawthorne Valley Farms is a, is a is a dynamic is as a, a biodynamic organic farm that does regenerative farming and dairy for a long time. They've been working and thinking about that, and they've been able to support their dairy and their dairy operation, the the butter and the milk and the yogurts and the things that are provided out of there through regenerative, biodynamically, organically grown you know, grasses and cows and cows that consume them. And we can totally do it. There is obviously, it's not going to flip over overnight, right? Like nothing does. But if we actually begin to uh, put ourselves into a place that is creates more access in terms of farmers being able to do it and then people being able to buy it, we shift it. If you actually can start to create the infrastructure around conventional. And so you, we've got a lot of like with the regenerative certification that's coming on board. I, I think that's attempting to to help create a, a measure. I don't necessarily know that another certification program is going to shift everything, but it does create the space for the conversation to happen. It does create a value add. A lot of farmers around here have grown regeneratively for years and years and years and years. That's just what they know how to do because food trucks weren't running every day, right? So they had to grow their own produce. They had to grow their own items. And those practices can be done um, and it allows them to kind of have inputs in there. And then, you know, organic as well has the ability to to lean into regeneration as well and and not just have someone have a conventional plot of plot growing corn and then a little square that's doing yeah no they're not unfortunately they're not <laughs> a swing state right like <laughs> iowa right and if it were you would have instead of this topic of of corn being brought up every year the idea of regenerative farming and this more healthy approach to food would be talked about every exactly. single year exactly but it's it's geographically screwed yeah. because we have we have this archaic i mean what if we had i mean i mean what if we had what if we had instead of the sugar and the corn subsidies which you know i think corn subsidy just that, that yeah. was my other question this is my other question was we have these bills you know we have these subsidies come out for whether it's evs and electric cars whether it's oil subsidies whether it's corn subsidies whether is there anything that could excel the process where we have subsidies for these farmers to say, hey, we don't want to monocrop anymore. We want to revitalize this land, but it's going to take investment, right? It's going to take some years to kind of do this. Is there an ability for, you know, subsidies to play a role in the transformation of of the supply chain that starts with the transformation of farmers, you know, going from monocrops to multi-crop. These things will take time, but man, the the domino effect of positive. It's huge. It's huge. And I, I, you know, it's, it's an it's a space where I think there's so much room for little things 
that can really help shift the conversation. Yeah. Like, for example, you know, our Secretary of Agriculture, you know, they have a lot of scope in what they do. You know, when Obama was in office, mm -hmm. they passed the Food Modernization Act, which is this huge uh, attempt to realign the food system towards more safety, less outbreaks, and, and all of that kind of stuff. The spirit of it was attempting to get alignment around that. It was not very – things that government tries – they try to write really big things to do really big broad stuff, and it, ne it never ends up working really right. well. Right. And so as we call it FISMA – at this point is just now rolling through that level of like regulatory oversight is just now coming into play in a very real way over the past two years. And, and Obama's been out of office for a hot minute. And that was, I think was in his yeah. first term. So like you said, things take a long time, but let's just say, for example, in the Biden administration right now, if they're really excited and, and super focused on climate change, you don't have to hit climate change with a big, huge cudgel. Right. That's going to create political right. division and get people all yeah. worried about carbon taxes and all that. Take it, take it yep. to take it to the kitchen. Right. There's some really clever things that we could do, in my opinion. I think the idea of the subsidy towards around regenerative farming practices or regeneratively grown ingredients could be prioritized and could be supported by saying we want to give you money in order to like create this marketplace for us because we think a regenerative place right. place is a really good spot to do it. One, we do a lot of things. We start to like reinvest in farmers. Our average age of our farmers like what fifty seven or fifty eight years old. I know it's it's, it's a, a huge problem. problem. So now we start making you know being a farmer as cool and sexy as it is to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. Two, we yep. automatically take a lot of money and put it into the hands of creating more education, more opportunity, more access to resources to make it happen. And then three, voila, all of a sudden you have a marketplace that's beginning to be supported through regenerative farming that guess what? It's very nature is a carbon sink. The fact that you're planting and yep. growing topsoil yep. and now capturing this actually achieves all of the nonsense all of that talk and yakky, yakky, yakky is actually now lived in a really real way. And there's no one who can't say yes to that. We don't have to go into these big hypothetical things where, you know, you want to do this because of the cow manure and all that. Just stop it. It's not stop. Break it down in a really easy way that says yeah. you need money to invest into the system. Once you invest it in the system, the return to the individuals, the businesses, the infrastructure, these places where farming has basically been eviscerated, that where climate is continuing to like wipe out people throughout the Midwest, throughout Florida, from flooding, from tornadoes, you name it, actually put some yep. thoughtfulness into that and like do simple, subtle moves inside there that you can actually control. And you'll find that rural people in places in the South who tend to lean a little bit more socially conservative are, will find deep value in the fact that you get where we're coming from and you marry that totally with progress. It's not that difficult. It really is not. It just right. takes someone to like stop getting caught up in the winds of the divisiveness because what I used to believe in, I think most people do, 90% of the things that we engage in our life, everyone wants. You want to be able to raise your family, you want to have a nice home, you want to have some savings, be able to go on vacation, you want to see your kids. Pretty much 90% of the things, we want good food, we want safe places to live. 90% of the things that are happening in our life, we can agree with. Last time I checked in school, 90% was what? An A. And we, we spend all our time <laughs> arguing about the 10%. That's what we do. So all of our time goes into the 10% yeah, yeah. of all the things that we have that are differences in the way that we think. And it's not that they aren't important. 10% is important, but it's not as powerful as the 90% of the places where we can do a lot of work. And I'm energized by the 90%. And I'm hopeful we can do it. Well, there's your future senator Psh, of North never. Carolina, Zane Adams. Never. <laughs> I want to... Uh... I want to end on – thank you so much for your time, man. I, I want to end on the last question around – look, it seems like, you know, just talking with you, this is this is going yeah. to be your life's work, man. This is going to be what you work on for, you know, for, yeah. for a really long time. I need time. to. I'm already um, 14 years in, man. We just got to keep it going, you know? <laughs> yeah, man. That's, that's amazing. But when you look, let's just say, you know, five years down the line, you know, three to five years, like that window because you – you could start to see some real results, but it's also near term enough where it's it's tangible. 
Like what, what does goals and successes look like for FedUp in that three to five years? Is it building out that asset portfolio of buying land, making it regenerative, putting your breweries in, uh, on this land? It, it, is it you know bu- just building out, empowering founders around the country to build better products, um, have better strategies when releasing these items? I guess just 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 talk us through maybe that three to five year vision and plan of of goals. All of the above. As a team. Um, yeah. I think I think in five years realistically, we you know success for us is never really measured as a point in time, but you know our aptitude around achievement is a metric that we feel excited about. And so I think a metric of achievement for us is, is we're working on opening and landing a third facility. Um, that's a very real thing for us. Um, that third facility will allow us to attract mission aligned brands that are looking for uh, operators and co-packers that are working with regenerative supply line uh, ingredients and farmers. Um, so one of those achievements would be that that facility is up and it's it's at full capacity. It has a rich diversity of customers that range across the um, RTD space, so ready to drink space. An achievement would be uh, continuing to nurture the retail buyers that we that we engage with every single day um, by utilizing what we call the Fed Up Food Summit or the Fuff Summit, which will be our first year this year. And it's in a smaller salon style. But the idea is, is that we don't people remove their name badges, check their egos at the door. No one knows where you work from a retailer perspective. We just are going to mix it with farmers, manufacturers, distributors, and buyers to have a generative conversation around things they want to solve within the food system for their stores. Like we have shorter inventory here. How do we think about bananas that are going to be, you know, uh, better and taste better for our customers. I want to roll out a whole salad line instead of buying from some other farm. Maybe me as a store can mm-hmm. come in as an investor in a regenerative farming situation mm-hmm. and now subsidize how tomatoes, cucumbers, and lettuces are grown. And I can put it in my own private label if I wanted to. So that would be something that would be yep. well on its way. Um, and beginning to nurture itself. I think another earmarker of achievement for us would be, you know, we have a lot of employees that, and I say a lot for us, it's a lot, probably it's still tiny in the, the big people world. Um, but we have about a, a, we have a little over a hundred employees, I think about 107, 108 employees. Um, I would love to see our growth continue to happen and abundance happen for them. Um, and what that means is, you know, more access to higher wages, more access to benefits, uh, you know, really deep, um, bigger, stronger 401ks. And we have those things now, but, you know, we're trying to balance scale and all that at the same time. So, you know, we'd love to, to be able to continue to have people who work with us both in Marshall, North Carolina and Irwin, Tennessee, and then wherever the third place is going to be, have more people there buying their own houses and being able to grow food and to have a system within our company that actually supports that work, you know, that actually says, hey, here's this $1,500 or $2,500 or whatever it is that's going to help you seed your farm at your place. Um, We have a community garden right now for the employees. Um, It would be amazing if we could have like essentially a community garden at one of our brewing facilities, either in Marshall or Irwin, or, or Irwin, Tennessee, that allows that to be grown. Gaia Foods does that for their team. And it's amazing what they do and the amount of crop that's grown. It has a full regenerative growing process and they're able to harvest that food and give it to their team as part of their compensation package. That would, that would be a really cool achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then last but not least, in five years, it would be great for Feta Foods to have a seat at the table with not only the retailers, but also those individuals in and around food policy as begin as we begin to think about creating access for uh, schools, in particular elementary, middle and high schools that are in an institutional food program to be able to talk about how to open up that very close system to producers and manufacturers and growers that are offering and providing regeneratively grown inputs. Right now, it's so hard to be able to, it's a very closed situation. And if we actually open that up and begin the conversation there, my hope is that they'll begin to intersect with each other. And so the, the retail kind of market around food begins to meet the institutional 
market around food that's also supplying, receiving supply from regenerative farming practices or regeneratively braced inputs. And then that scale is just, it's just there. It's, and then it just starts to hype and grow. And I don't know, I love the subsidies for regenerative farmers. That would be something that'd be really cool. I don't know if we can do that in five years, but it would be nice to at least begin conversation in, in those places where um, those ideas could get some traction. Wait, you mentioned the summit real quick. Is that is that going to be this year? Do you know when that's going to be? Yeah, so um, we're actually we're it, it's probably going to be in September. We're trying to decide if it's going to be a virtual format or or an in person format. There's a lot of we have to be elegant in the way that we do it so that we you know provide safe space because you know buyers don't want to be harassed. Just the worst thing. Someone goes, "Hey, I I got sure, I got this man. new magic yeah, you know yeah. cereal." You know, get away from me. I'm not doing that. Um, so to be able to have it yeah, so that yeah. they can come in and feel comfortable, they won't need to disclose who and what they work for, but then also marry it with, I mean, the farmer community that we work with right now is they're, they're ready to kind of come and engage. Um, honestly, sure. we're like one of the only manufacturers that are deep in private label that have a regenerative forward position and sourcing. That's a big deal. I think there's one other company. It's HPS or HBC. Anyway, they're a specialty. They do like dried powders and stuff like that. I think they have a real focus on regenerative. But gotcha. we're very like there's we're like we're we're cowboys and cow gals out here. You know, totally different, totally different land. Um, so that would be pretty phenomenal if if that would actually be able to come into play. Man, well, thank you so much, Zane, for taking the time. This has been an incredible conversation. Definitely. Over the next, you know, 10, 20 years, man, I, I just, I'm optimistic about the this sort of stuff. But look, it, it's very difficult, very hard, right? Going up against behemoths and industry that has been standardized and just, but a lot what you see if, with with our economic system, financial system starting to get digitized right. in a way, right? And, and having yeah. that go through a transition. I think, you know, food is, is and not even food, but just farming right and treating yeah. our land appropriately yeah let nature take its course right and let it feed us mm-hmm. how it's intended to do i think is going to be much more top of mind i think that transition it's going to happen man because there's a lot there's a lot of people wanting to work in it there's a lot of people like yeah. you and the team working on it but i think you're gonna see just like you're mm-hmm. you took your talents to regenerative right you took your talents to this yeah. side of yeah of, of business i think we're starting to see more people young yeah. people obviously yeah. going to lead the way right but those talents, instead of going to, you know, mm-hmm. a big company, right? Maybe going to, you know, a startup or going to, to companies like yours, yes. bringing their talents. That to me. Absolutely. Is gonna, gonna I, ton, I agree. You know, to have that yep. strategic advising and business that yeah. go towards this right? stuff rather than going toward man. that other stuff. I don't know, man. That, that, that's, I agree. That's I agree. Well, I appreciate your time so much, Grant, and sharing your your thoughts. And um, I was able to dive into a lot of the other episodes that you've done. I appreciate your work and the ability to create a platform for for conversation to happen, but also to bring a, a spotlight or a big, large flashlight onto businesses and people mm. and, and the causes at which they they work in, in and on this planet and the, and the reasons why they do, because it just allows the critical mass of awareness to grow even more. It gives us something to know that we're not the only ones in the room and to also put it forward that says our goal is not to be some exclusive little club of people who have these ideas. The idea is is that everyone, everyone can be in this space. Everyone can operate in a way that says more access, more food, more abundance, more prosperity is completely possible when we bring ourselves into this convergence with one another as humans and decide that we are worth and our home is worth fighting for. 